Good morning. Today's date is January 28th, 2024. We are reading from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, page 494, beginning with outline the program of action to and including the paragraph on page 94, your candidate may give. Anne-Marie will be our reader, followed by a 20-minute share by Amy Kay. Go ahead, Anne-Marie. Morning, Anne-Marie Kay from PA. Uh, so grateful to be absent for these 24 hours and be recovered for these 24 hours. Outline the program of action, explaining how you made a self-appraisal, how you straightened out your past and why you're now endeavoring to be helpful to him. It's important for him to realize that you attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital part of your own recovery. Actually, he may be helping you more than you're helping him. Make it plain he is under no obligation to you, that you hope only that he will try to help other alcoholics when he escapes his own difficulties. Suggest how important it is that he place the welfare of other people ahead of his own. Make it clear that he is not under pressure, that he needn't see you again if he doesn't want to. You should not be offended if he wants to call it off, for he has helped you more than you have helped him. If you talk, if your talk has been saying quiet, full human understanding, you have perhaps made a friend. Maybe you have disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. This is all to the good. The more hopeless he feels, the better. He will be more likely to follow your suggestions. Your candidate may give reasons why he need not follow all the programs. He may rebel at the thought of drastic house cleaving, which requires discussion with other people. Do not contradict such views. Tell him you only you once felt as he does, but you doubt whether you would have made much progress had you not taken action. On your first visit, tell him about the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. If he shows interest, lend him your copy of this book. Thank you for letting me do service and everybody else who's doing it today. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. And now we will have a 20-minute share from Amy Kay, who will shed light on these pages. We look forward to hearing your share, Amy. Go ahead. Thanks. Can I be heard? You can. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Virginia Beach. My name is Amy. Uh, my OA career began when I was 18 years old. I had gotten into another fellowship at the age of 17, and they had simultaneous meetings. They there was AA, Al-Anon, and OA, and I remember and it was a long hallway of a church. And I remember walking in one time, and somebody from an OA meeting said, "Oh, are you here from OA?" And I was furious because I assumed that she was asking me that because she thought I was fat. And it delayed my time of, of actually making it into that room um, a little bit longer than maybe it should have. But what's interesting about that for me is that that hypersensitivity um, and that selfishness and self-centeredness was there for me from the present. Uh, I think I had an emotionally immature perspective that life was supposed to look like a movie. And, and I was the star and I was also the writer and the director and the producer. Um, and, and you all were just kind of the scenery, but the only, the only reason you were in the show at all was to make me look good and feel good. So I, I always was viewing the world through a filter of self. 
I had absolutely no idea that that was the root of my troubles. I was certain that once the other substances had gotten out of the way, that, that all I really needed was to lose some weight. And I cannot tell you how much I wanted a good food plan or a magical exercise regime to be the answer. Um, it is much easier to think that things don't work out in life because I'm fat, because, because I don't look good enough. And that's why I didn't get the job or I didn't get the boy or my parents were ashamed of me. It's much harder to admit that the reason things don't work out is because I relate to the world in a completely self-obsessed way. And I have no idea how to have a true partnership with other human beings. I have no idea how to be self-sacrificing. Um, so step 12 is a really, really big deal for me. And, and I'm sorry to admit that it was not a big deal for me for many years. I kind of had the attitude that I was gonna come here, I was gonna get all the goodies, and then I was gonna go on my way rejoicing, managing my life, living a good life, maybe accepting an Oscar one day when I'm a size six and have a perfect dress. And I'll thank all of you little people because certainly you helped me along the way. That's what I thought was gonna happen. Um, and I really, really each time through the steps, chapter seven seems so far off. I mean, step 12 is at the end. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on before. And so in my mind, it was just kind of, well, it's one twelfth of a whole. How big of a deal is it really? But each time I go through this work, what I find are more and more clues along. And actually, they're not clues. They're straight up sentences. They're directions. Starting from the forewords, it's there all along. We're going to work this out on a spiritual as well as a, an altruistic plane. My first thought must be of others and how I may best help meet their needs. That does not sound like fun. And I'm a person who wants to have a good time. Self-sacrifice, discipline, those things don't sound great. Having people sleep on my couch, getting calls in the middle of the night, being inconvenienced, that's the exact opposite of what I want. I want that sense of ease and comfort. Interestingly, it says sense of ease and comfort. What I can't get when I really get here and I get recovered is I get true ease and comfort, not just a sense of it that numbing myself and stuffing myself got me, which never lasted for very long. Uh, I, I did not come to sponsorship happily. As I said, I want to be thinking about myself all the time. And there are many days when the phone rings and I'm plotting world domination. I'm absolutely sure that my little plans and designs are huge visions that are going to change everything for everyone. And I do not want to be interrupted in this enterprise. But I answer the phone anyway because I've been taught it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't really matter what I feel. It matters what I do. And I keep doing it. And I cannot tell you that I do it out of virtue. I wish I could. Um, when I first got into to some, some part of a spiritual life, what I really thought that meant was that I was going to end up being a shriveled up little old lady with a tight curly perm, gray hair, sitting in the corner of a church basement, eating hard boiled eggs out of a fanny pack. I thought that's what it was going to come to for me to be living on a spiritual life, that somehow that's what it looked like. Or maybe some kind of Mother Teresa scenario where I was in Africa with crying children <clears throat> and mud and insects and horrible oppressive heat. That is what life on a spiritual basis sounded like to me. It didn't at all sound like God is going to take the good in me and the bad in me, and he's going to put it to an incredible purpose. He's going to give me a meaning in my life that is far beyond 
anything that I could have dreamed up for myself. Even the dreams when I was stuffing my face with whatever it was on that day. And, and I was thinking about getting that Oscar as a perfect size six. Um, I like that we're given directions because I have a tendency to want to freewheel everything. Uh, and my idea of sponsoring is to just take over your life, mainly because I don't want to think about my life. Also, because I think I'm the smartest person in the room. And, and I have operated as a life coach, a social worker, a banker, you know, a, a reparenting therapist, whatever it is. And the thing is, I suck with money. I am not a parent. I have never been married. I don't know anything about any of those things, but I will talk to you authoritatively as if I am a banker, an attorney, a psychologist, a personal chef, a nutritionist, whatever it is because I want to enjoy a certain reputation that I know I don't deserve. I want to, my ego wants to project something to you that's gonna make you love me, that's gonna make you approve of me, that's gonna make you affirm me. <clears throat> and so I, I carried that kind of mess into my 12 step work for many years. I, I wanted to create this kind of cult of personality around me so that everybody was doing exactly what I was doing. And it wasn't for their good or even for the greater good or my own good. It was so that I could feel okay about what I was doing. Because if you all do it exactly the way I do, then I can feel all right about what I'm doing. It's kind of hard to talk about step 12 without getting into step 10 and 11. Because if I am not current in inventory in step 10, what I'm dragging up into step 12 is my own mess. <clears throat> and what that can sound like is I have uninventoried stuff about boys, about romantic love, about people who are couples, about whoever the last Mr. Wrong was that did me wrong. And when you're t coming to me and you're telling me your stuff and your step 10, instead of me saying, let's get to God and see what God has for us here, or let's see what the book has to say about this. I'm going to start telling you from my wound, my open festering wound. Yeah, it's that guy. Men are crap. It's always the guy's fault. Screw him. Just get rid of him. Find somebody else. You know, I'm going to get into all this psycho babble stuff. I'm not going to be able to offer up good orderly direction because I haven't cleaned up enough in step 10 so that I'm channeling power and love in step 11. They're static. And then I'm in step 12 with nothing for you except self. And self looks like self-pity. I'm a victim and it's your fault. You need to change in order for me to be okay. I'm selfish. It needs to be my way. I'm entitled. I think that I have that emotionally perspective, immature perspective, that things are supposed to be easy. Things are supposed to be comfortable. And then I dishonestly, when things aren't easy and comfortable, start acting out to try to manipulate, fix, and control and make them easy and comfortable. So, so probably one of the most important elements of my step 10 practice is really leaning into where my dishonesties are. I start this, I start this kind of list when I'm in we agnostics, when I'm in step two, asking myself, what are my superstitions? What are my fixed ideas? What are the things that keep me fettered? Because at this point, I'm out from behind the food and I'm squarely taking a look at the thing that's blocking me from God and from you and from who God made me to be. So my true self, what's blocking me is me. It's my thinking. It's my idea that God only helps good people. Well, I know I'm not one of the good people. I've been bad from the moment I was born. I'm absolutely sure that I'm hopelessly broken. That in fact, I have a problem with morbid obesity because God is punishing me 
because I'm not one of the good people. Another one of my dishonesties is I'm always going to feel this way. This is a horrible situation. This is going to kill me. God is somehow not present in this moment. Well, if God is everything, how is it possible that not God is not everything in a moment of grief or rage? I also take a look at, I don't accept reality. I mean, my real addiction is to my own version of reality. I don't like the way things are out there. I want it to be different. And I think that I have the agency because I play God as the smartest person in the room. I think I have the agency to make things different. In fact, I frequently use my big brain as my own higher power. What I really like to do is live up in my control tower all of the time. And that's great for me as a compulsive overeater because I can pretend like I don't even have a physical self. And so while I'm eating, eating, eating and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, eating myself into diabetes, eating myself into morbid obesity, gaining, losing, gaining, losing over a thousand pounds in my OA career, I'm still up here where everything is sterile, antiseptic. I am completely in charge and I'm looking out at you and I'm judging you. I'm criticizing you and I'm showing up to take what I can get from you. I mean, you're all failing at what you're supposed to be doing because I'm a heat seeking missile for approval and affirmation and you're not doing anything at all for me. So I'm definitely not interested in you or your concerns. I want to live up here disembodied. The problem with superiority and judgment and criticism, though, is that the one thing I really want, which is your love and your acceptance, I'm preventing myself from ever getting it because I don't really feel superior. What I feel is separate, different. I was always a fat kid. I went to private school. Nobody else in my neighborhood went to the same private school. I went to a boarding school. I skipped two grades. I was always the youngest kid. Um, and I don't tell you all that because I think I'm particularly interesting. Actually, that's a lie. I think I'm fascinating, but I'm telling you that because I felt different and I've never heard anybody's story in any fellowship that did not have that component that I was different and the fear and the tension and the conflict about being different and trying to fit in but also the other side of that, of making up a narrative where it's okay not to fit in because being different means I'm better than. So I'm up here, icy, intellectual self-sufficiency, uh, but I'm also down here, I'm the biggest piece of dirt in the entire room. All of this stuff, this, this mess gets addressed as I go through the steps, but where it really blossoms, where it really just starts to perfume my entire life is in step 12. Because I find that as I have come to know myself and as if I have come to know God in the course of working these steps of walking out this way of life, I learn how to love you instead of projecting my self-loathing onto you. I can come to you and I can love you. I had no idea what unconditional love and acceptance was um, before sponsorship uh, entered my life in a really profound and intimate way. Uh, I just started about a month ago, a step workshop, taking a large group of women through the first seven chapters of the big book, because what was happening was that across a couple of fellowships, I was sponsoring more and more. My sponsees were asking for help with their sponsees and then their sponsees. Uh, and then I took over a position in my local intergroup, and there were even more people. 
And, and so the opposite of what my life living inside a box of fat and fear is when I'm out in the world, I, I become something that is attractive to other people. And by me, I mean the great reality deep within me. I mean, the divine spark that's in me, not me. I'm still a pretty loud mouth know-it-all. I still have the tendency to default into that large and in charge part of my personality. Um, when I weighed almost 350 pounds, my large and in charge personality was in place because I thought that if I could control you or make you laugh or, or have you pay attention to anything other than my weight, that I would be okay. It, it's the worst thing in the world to walk in a room and to meet people's eyes and to see that look of, oh my gosh, she's so big. How did she let herself go? And so I adopted all of these different roles to play so that maybe people wouldn't notice. So there's the smartest kid in the classroom. There's the child of wealth and privilege. There's large and in charge. There is the force of one. I'm the person that gets it done. So maybe people will want to have me around and maybe they'll love me and maybe they won't be ashamed of me if I'm the person that can get everything done. So on top of using my big brain as a, as a higher power, I have also used service as a higher power with this kind of twisted perspective that the more I do, the more worthy I'll be of your love and God's love. The problem with that is that all I end up with is the resentment that you're not doing as much as I am and I'm tired, damn it. And the fear that it will never be enough, which really is a fear that I will never be enough. So I come to step 12 and, and I'm armed with the facts about myself. And I start falling in love with you people because your stories are my, my stories. And I start, I start getting deeply healed because I recognize that if I can love you, that means I must be able to love myself. If you are acceptable, that must mean that I am acceptable as well. And I start hearing, I start hearing all of the objections. I start hearing all the stuff that's a product of minds that are still trying to run the show, but cannot differentiate the true from the false, that suffer from strange mental blank spots, that, that <clears throat> use fallacious reasoning and, and have a strange mental twist. I don't always hear insanity coming out of my mouth, but I always hear it coming out of yours. So working with others every single day is a way for me. It's, it's an inoculation against falling back into the delusion that I am like other people, or that if I'm skinny enough, I'll be like other people. What I find out in step four is that all of my resentments are because I'm trying to get the security, direction, connection, and self-worth from you that will only be satisfied by God. And that in fact, all of those resentments are the exact shape and size of the fear that they're covering. I want to show my anger to the world because it makes me feel powerful and self-righteous. I don't want you to know that I'm afraid, that that makes me feel weak and vulnerable. I think it's my job to protect me instead of God's job. And when I know this about myself, I can also know this about you. Somebody this week was telling me that I was a wizard, that I was finishing their sentences. And how could that be so? I mean, I did want to admit, I did want to kind of go ahead and say, yeah, I am a wizard. I really do know everything. I didn't do that though, because what I know is that I know you because I know me. I can love you and learn how to love me. And that this business of sponsoring, um, and I just want to differentiate because I'll sometimes conflate the words that, that service is what gets done to enable 12-step work. 
And, and what I'm talking about today is 12 step work. Um, and, and this 12 step work is, is nothing to be figured out. It is their specific directions. And when I get to know you, I know how to approach you. Um, I am not an anorexic. I have not suffered with that. I am not a bulimic. I have not had that. I, I am a compulsive overeater and an exercise bulimic. Uh, there would have been a time in my life when I would have, with a very authoritative tone, gone ahead and sponsored people, even though I had no experience with that. Today, I will help somebody find a sponsor who has that experience. This is a life and death matter. I am not willing to bet your life on my opinion. Although I am an extremely opinionated person, today what I understand is that it is my job not to solve your problems, but to get you to the problem solver. It is also not my job to convince you. And I'm a great convincer. Um, I mean, the when, when I read any kind of sentence in the book that says we avoid controversy, we've resigned from the debating society, I think, ah, eh, yeah, because I love to argue. I love to be right. I love to impose my will on other people. I want to gather a consensus around me and have everybody be on my team, the Amy team. That's what I want uh, because I'm selfish and self-centered. So this is a way for me, it's a way for God to help me combat that because I'm not in this for me. Yeah, I'm doing it because I'm walking out step 12, but that's all I'm doing. I'm not the leader. I'm not the teacher. I am just like you practicing this step that is the one thing that will guarantee my immunity from eating again. And I do not want to eat again. I really lowballed God when, when I got the idea that all I really needed from here was to lose weight. Um, I had a program in another, I, I had, I was working a program in another fellowship. I've had long-term recovery in that fellowship. And um, my abstinence date is April 30th, 2020. So I got here many, many years ago and always participated in Overeaters Anonymous and had periods of abstinence, had periods of, of being at a normal weight, but I was never free. When I finally hit the bottom, that was the bottom, um, I came to a vision for you. And I called somebody who was telling my story. And, and of course, my ego needed me to inform her of all of my statistics, everything I've accomplished all the speaking engagements I have, all the workshops I do, all the stuff. And I said, you know, I'm a recovered alcoholic. I got so blah, blah, blah. And she said, let me just tell you something. You are not recovered if you weigh over 300 pounds from anything. And I definitely did not like that. But it was exactly what I needed to hear. There's a great sentence in here. Um, um, maybe you have disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. Now, this woman disturbed me. She deeply disturbed me, but it was exactly what I needed to hear. So there's another thing that I'm getting, another wound that's being addressed in this 12-step work, and that's my people-pleasing and codependency. I want everybody to like me, so I don't want to tell you something that might upset you, but I needed to be upset. I was dying from my compulsive overeating, and I could not stop. And I'll, I'll be 57 on Wednesday, so I've had a long haul dragging butt scraped and bleeding through the streets with this illness and i could not stop i could not get free i knew how to control food i knew how to regulate food i knew how to exercise food off i never expected anything more from my higher power than the consistent ability to just be able to say no that's what i thought was going to happen 
that I would just be able to say no. And it would always be there kind of like a, a, like a low grade fever. It's kind of in the background, but it, it definitely impedes your ability to feel great or happy, joyous and free. But I thought that was what I was going to get. I didn't believe any of you when you said that it just went off the radar screen, that it just wasn't an issue anymore. I just, I couldn't believe that. But the truth of the matter is, is that every word in this book is absolutely true. And that every single page filled with directions and promises and prayers and warnings, all of this gives me everything I need for all of my problems to be solved. And the greatest gift I have to pass on to other people is the truth of my experience. That's all I have. I don't have a perfect food plan. You don't want me planning your food. I'm a, I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm terrible with money. You don't want me as a banker. As I said, never been a mother, never been a wife. I don't have those things to offer. What I do have to offer is how to get to spiritual experiences that transform and recreate lives because it happened to me. And it keeps happening every single day. For most of my OA career, I would happily tell you about the fact that I am an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict, I'm a sex and love addict, I'm a codependent, on and on and on. Because it's kind of sexy to be an alcoholic and a drug addict. It's a little bit rock and roll. It is absolutely not sexy and not cool to be a compulsive overeater. So I was certain that I would never be saying to anyone that I was a grateful compulsive overeater. And I can tell you now, that I have the best sobriety of my life because I am a compulsive overeater, because I get to work every single day like it is day one. The greatest gift is the worst day of my life. That's what I have to offer you. Thanks for listening.